Let's pray. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that you have rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. That we have hope, that we have life, that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer under condemnation. We are no longer under your judgment and wrath. We are no longer at enmity with you, but we now have fellowship with you as sons and daughters. What a gift. And Lord, this morning as we look at your word together, I pray that you would renew yet again our affection for you and our desire to walk in accordance with the work that you have done in your great gospel. That we would be holy and blameless, that we would be pure, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, and please open your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to make our way through the whole chapter. And as you turn to James chapter 4, I want you to, to consider if you've ever had something like this where uh, you have maybe a splinter and you think you get that splinter out, uh, and yet a small piece of it remains, and over time it starts to get sore and a little bit more sore. Maybe it's, it's getting a, a little infected. And then all of a sudden something happens and you bump that area and your eyes pop out of your head and your kids wonder what just happened. And you go, wow, I didn't realize it was that bad. What just happened? And then you realize, I got to deal with this. I can't just let it keep going, and that's going to be painful, and that's going to be uncomfortable. But you know what? On the other side of it, it's going to bring great relief. It's going to be much better that I deal with it now, even though it might be extremely painful. Well, that's what James is going to do with us this morning in James chapter 4. He's going to address some things in us that might be kind of painful. It might hurt a little. It might expose some things this morning that are uncomfortable to see, but they need to be dealt with. And let me encourage you, if you deal with them, what awaits you on the other side is well worth it. So, you've been warned. This morning might be a little challenging. Uh, Let's read James chapter 4 together, starting in verse 1. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts? Among you, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now. You who say tomorrow, or today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, 
you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him, it is a sin. Each one of us has the potential to go back and live as we did prior to salvation. We have the potential to, as Paul instructs us not to do, to present our members for unrighteousness. Or to walk not in the spirit, but to walk in the deeds of the flesh. And James here, in James chapter 4, is helping us pursue wisdom from above. That's what he spoke about in chapter 3. And to flee what is worldly, to flee worldly wisdom, worldly thinking. And he understands, as we must, that friendship with the world is to be an enemy with God. An enemy of God. Therefore, as those who have been reconciled to God, we must wage war on the worldliness that is in our hearts. We must put it aside. And so where worldliness exists in your heart, in my heart, we must wage war against this. We must put it aside. And God desires for us to have sweet fellowship with him and to put off anything that might hinder that fellowship. Sin hinders that fellowship. Therefore, where worldliness exists in us, we must kill it. We must do away with it. We must put it to death. We must set it aside, cast it off. And so this morning, as we work through James chapter 4, we're going to answer the question, this question, how must I wage war on a worldly heart? How must I wage war on a worldly heart where worldliness still exists inside of me? How must I attack it? How must I do away with it? Where worldliness exists in my heart, how must I go after that worldliness? And so first, number one, how must I wage war on a worldly heart? Well, first, I must address the lust of a worldly heart. That's what we see in verse 1 through the first part of verse 6. I must address the lust of a worldly heart. And James begins this section asking a heart-penetrating question. Look again at verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He literally says, from where quarrels and from where conflicts among you? And in this question, James gets to the heart of selfishness, the heart of personal gratification, the heart of what lusts or strong passions. He's not merely talking about lust in a a sexual impurity way. He's talking about the strong passions, the strong desires within you. And by asking this question, he actually reveals, he shows what is revealing outwardly the reality of what is in your heart. And James uses the word quarrels. This is the making of war. And then the word for conflicts is the little altercations or the little battles that take place. James is saying, what is the source of feuds happening within the church? What is the source of these conflicts, these unresolved disputes that are happening within the household of God? And the answer is quite startling. He doesn't say the problem is those around you. He doesn't say it's your circumstances. He doesn't say it's a toxic environment that you are in. What is the source of conflict or warring among you? Contention between believers? Look again at verse 1. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He says your, your pleasures, it is our passions. Why is there strife in the church? It is because there have been unchecked passions for pleasure, desires to be satisfied. It's desire to be fulfilled in things outside of God. Unchecked longings and desires bring a worldliness into the assembly of God. 
And one of the surefire ways to know that worldliness is in your heart is when these desires for pleasure, which are waging war in you, go unchecked and are manifested through contention with others. This is sobering because if you find yourself in conflict, if you find yourself in quarrels with others, the solution isn't going somewhere else. Sometimes we think that's the case. I just need to get away from this, from this environment. I need to, I'll go to another church. I'll look for another group. But that's not the solution because, listen, wherever you end up going, you'll still be there. <laughs> and you're the source. I'm the source. When we're engaged in quarrels and conflicts, it's our own passions, our own desires that we're unwilling to let go of. And James says this kind of living, it is worldliness. It is worldliness. It's not wisdom from above that would produce such quarrels. This is worldly wisdom. We might think we've escaped the world. We might think we're doing pretty good because we don't do the atrocious sins we've set up in our minds. You may think you aren't like the world because you don't do the overt sinful things. But James is getting to signs of worldliness by addressing difficult, convicting things pertaining to self-love and selfishness and personal passions. And longings that when unchecked, categorically put us as acting in a worldly manner. And these things are significant to remember. Chapter 3, verse 16, James says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Where this kind of selfishness and self-absorption exists, nothing is off the table. There's disorder in every evil thing, and apparently even murder that we see here in chapter 4. Look at what James says in verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. I don't think he's simply speaking about what Jesus says, where if you're angry at someone, you've murdered them in your heart, although that is true. I think there's actually murder taking place in the assembly. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, he says. James says you lust or you crave, you have these desires. And James is speaking to professing believers, yet they have unchecked desires and unchecked sin within their life. He says, you don't get what you want, so you commit murder. You go from warring to actual murder. What are these passions? What are these lusts? This may be where you want something and you desire something and you know it's wrong, but you want it anyway and you'll do whatever it takes to get it, to be satisfied in it. Or there may be no prohibition in scripture, but you want it. And so you go after it and you do whatever it takes and you sin and stumble in your attempt to get it. Or maybe it's not even a thing you want, but you have expectations of others. You have expectations of God or others. And and so you demand and you're controlled by these expectations. I need to be treated this way. I need to be cared for this way. I need these kinds of relationship and people need to do this for me and God needs to provide this for me. And you become a manipulator and are ungodly when that expectation isn't fulfilled. You complain, and you might even mask your complaint in what looks like noble desires, but in your heart, what is driving you is your lust, your strong passions, not a trust in God, not contentment, not love of others, but self-love. James says you are envious and you cannot obtain, and your heart exists jealousy, And you're trying to figure out how to satisfy this lust, this craving within you. Maybe you're angry because someone has something you want or didn't treat you the way that you desire. And James says, you cannot obtain. The point is, you're trying to get it, and you just can't. And so you fight and quarrel. You become resentful of those around you. You're discontent. You are ungrateful in those moments, and this kind of worldliness is originating from you. But you don't see it in that moment. I don't see it typically in that moment. In that kind of conflict, what do we often do? We claim to be the innocent ones. I had good motives, I did nothing wrong. 
They blew this out of proportion. They're the ones not doing what God calls them to. I'm justified in my discontentment. And the focus shifts to what others are or are not doing, and there's jealousy, unchecked desires or lusts. These are devastating, devastating to us individually and to us as the church. When you water the seeds of jealousy, you have watered the seeds of worldliness. These might be the wrong desires pursued the wrong way, but these can also be the right desires held for and longed for in the right way. Have you ever felt that or maybe even defended yourself? Someone may address you regarding idolatry in your defenses. What what is wrong with me wanting this thing? Fill in the blank. What, What is wrong with me wanting to be married? What is wrong with me wanting closer relationships? What is wrong with me wanting deeper fellowship? What is wrong with me wanting greater opportunities to serve? And while none of those things in and of themselves are sinful wrong things, if you are jealous for those things, you are bringing worldliness into the church. James is saying if you are in conflict with another believer, you have unchecked lust in your heart, and this worldliness can so easily creep in. James goes on and he peels back another layer away to once again penetrate The heart of the matter, look at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so to uncover the lust of a worldly heart, James looks at the habit of your prayers. What does a life of unchecked passions look like? Well, they have elevated themselves above God in their heart. When you have worldly lusts in your heart, you long for all sorts sorts of various things. And James says, you don't have them because you do not ask. And think about it. You're, You're in those times, James is saying, you're willing to quarrel. You're willing to manipulate. You are jealous, even willing to commit murder. But you don't actually go to God for these things backwards. And if you do go to God, you don't receive these things from God because you're asking with wrong motives. And James isn't so much concerned with the specifics of what you're asking for, but he's addressing the heart you are coming before God with. You see, a heart with unchecked passions is a heart that is living as if God is no longer master, but they are master. It isn't the skill of your prayer that is the problem, but the problem is that their prayer life is either non-existent or they are so self-absorbed in their prayers that they ask with themselves at the center of their prayers. They ask with wrong motives. They may be even asking for a reasonable thing, but they are asking with wrong motives and God knows you have idolatry in your heart and he's not going to give you that which will just feed your worldly idolatry. You are quarreling and fighting for these things you want and you don't even come to God for them. And if you do, your heart is so consumed with self, you ask with the wrong motives. You don't come with thankfulness. In those moments, you don't come with contentment. All you can see in that moment is what you don't have. I need this. I want this. And this moves so quickly from prayers for what you want to prayers to God of resentment. God, you never answer my prayer. You don't truly love me. And the real question in that moment is, are you willing to trust God? Are you willing to ask him for wisdom that James talks about in chapter 1 to live godly in your circumstances, not just coming to God, asking him to change your circumstances? Are you willing to trust God? Or do you have stipulations, contingencies? This kind of person that James describes here with these kinds of prayers isn't interested in living for God. This kind of person wants God to live for them. Let me just ask you, 
How much do you think about God in your prayers? How much do you think about God in your prayers versus how much you think about yourself in your prayers? And when your heart is in this state, even if God gave you what you asked for, you wouldn't use it for him. You wouldn't use it to serve others. You'd spend it on yourself. That's a problem that reveals lust, unchecked lust in the heart that reveals worldliness. And James says, verse four, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He goes on to say in in verse four, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, you adulteresses, when you're consumed with self and are a friend of the world, and when you are a friend of the world, you have betrayed the relationship with God, your relationship with God. When you're a friend of the world, you, you, you have betrayed the relationship that you have with God, that you've committed yourself to. And in that moment, you actually betray God. Why must you wage war? Why must I wage war on worldliness? Because to be a friend with the world is to be at war with God, and you can't have both. You cannot be a friend with God and a friend with the world. And do not miss what is at the heart of the the wars and quarrels, the contentious relationships, the bitter jealousy, the evaluation of it, that God says it is worldliness. It is worldliness. We can't fool ourselves into thinking that just because we may have escaped some of the atrocious overt worldly behaviors, we've actually escaped worldliness. You can clean yourself up on the outside, but if you still have unchecked passions in your heart, you have not escaped worldliness. In fact, if you are content to remain in jealousy, if you are content to remain in quarrels, if you're content to hold on to your lusts and your passions, you make yourself an enemy of God. This is sobering. Then look at verse 5. James says, Or or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Then he says, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And this verse is a little tricky. James asks the question, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? And I don't believe he's about to reference a specific passage as the next clause isn't found in scripture elsewhere. Rather, he's asking, do you think the scriptures have no purpose for helping you in this? Do you think the message of scripture speaks with no purpose, that there's no truth to it or no help for you in it? Then when James says he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, it seems he is actually making a point regarding jealousy. You're working through jealousy. Let me tell you about jealousy. God jealously desires the spirit, his spirit, which he has made to dwell in us. And James is highlighting the jealous desire of God for control in your life. Don't live as an enemy of God. He wants fellowship with you. You need to submit to God and need to lay aside your passions. He is trustworthy where you are not. When it comes to passions, his are always pure. When it comes to affections, his are always right. When it comes to what is pure and good and right, he is always all of those things. He always does what is right. He always has right motives in it. And he has placed his spirit in you and his spirit is to dominate your desires. Let the Spirit of God control you. That's why he can say, submit to him. And this is hard. This can be extremely hard. Especially where there's hurt or disappointment or betrayal. Situations and relationships can be so emotionally charged especially where there's betrayal and sin and hurt. And you might say, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can let go of these things. I don't know if I can move forward with these things. I don't know if I can reconcile these relationships. There's too much hurt I've gone through. It's been too long. It's me time. I need to give more attention to myself. I'm tired of being trampled. Those thoughts and feelings are very real. 
these real life circumstances are really challenging. But look at the next line. Look at the next line in verse six. But he gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace. There's only one way to escape this worldliness, and it's God. God gives a greater grace. How do you escape the entanglement of the worldly lusts of your heart? Verse 7, submit to God. If you stop trying to control things to get your desires, if you let go of those desires, if you stop trying to manipulate everything, if you look to God, you might even think, I've been hurt too bad. I can't go through something like that again. I won't go through that again. Listen, he gives a greater grace. There is hope in God. He gives a greater grace. Maybe you actually will go through that trial again. The question is, are you content to be satisfied, not by the ease of your circumstances and relationships, but are you content to be satisfied in God? And if, if you're a believer, the answer is you can be because he gives a greater grace. Chasing what you want is a lie that tells you if you get it, you will experience fulfillment. When reality, true fulfillment comes with submitting every area, every area and every passion and every longing and every strong desire to God and God's promises, he will fulfill you. It might not look like what you thought, but he is faithful and he is good and he is trustworthy and he satisfies. He gives a greater grace. Let the grace of God fulfill your longings. Let them inform your longings. We cannot place one hand on God and one hand on our prior conversion, prior to conversion worldly longings. You can't do both. You don't want to do both. You want the greater grace that comes in clinging to God. So, wage war on worldliness in your heart. How? Address the lusts of a worldly heart. Next, number two, address the pride of a worldly heart. Address the pride of a worldly heart. And we see this in the second half of verse six through verse 10. Uh, Address the pride of a worldly heart. You want to wage war on a worldly heart? You want to forsake the lusts of your heart? Uh, Look to God who gives a greater grace. Humble yourself under God. Address the pride of thinking you know best. Address the pride of thinking your way is best. Address the pride of thinking something other than God will truly satisfy. James says in verse 6, Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want this greater grace? Humble yourself. Humble yourself under God. To be proud before God is to be a friend of the world. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And God is opposed to that kind of person. But where there is worldliness in your heart and you address it and you deal with the pride of a worldly heart, God is near and God gives a greater grace. So what would it look like to address the pride of a worldly heart? What would it look like to be humble before God? James actually gives us 10 directives or 10 imperatives in the following verses for addressing the pride of a worldly heart. And he does it in rapid fire progression. And many of these overlap with one another. First, his first directive is there in verse 7, submit to God. Submit to God, surrender to God's supremacy. Recognize God's authority and fall in line under him. Obeying his word and submitting to him. Set aside your fleshly passions and submit your life under God's authority, God's care, God's instruction. Then he says, resist the devil. Number two, resist the devil. He will flee from you. This is stand against evil influences. Stand against evil influences. Resist the devil. Submitting to God is the beginning of this. And as you submit to God, stand against evil influences in your life. 
And here we see that the, the devil can be defeated. These inf- evil influences in your life can be defeated. He will flee. God's greater grace comes into play. And if you've ever felt that you were too deep in sin, I'm too entangled, there's no way out. I'm too entrenched. There's too much history here. Too much damage has been done. Too much hurt has been experienced. Whatever actions or thinking or struggle or sins that you are in, you have hope. You have hope. Next he says, draw near to God. Draw near to God. And he follows it up saying, and he will draw near to you. Intimate fellowship with God should be initiated by you. You, Christian, initiate intimate fellowship with God. Draw near to God. Stand against evil influences and bring into your heart and mind the influence of God himself. Fellowship with God is crucial for the Christian life. This really is discipline one that we talk about in most of the ministries here at Grace Bible Church. Shepherd your heart. Draw near to God. This is to pray, it's to read your Bible, it's to worship him, it's to cultivate intimate fellowship with him. And not only for a half hour in the mornings, but draw near to him continually in your life as you face the various struggles and temptations and trials. Let God's word permeate within you so that your mind, you direct it to those truths about God as you experience those different hardships and trials and struggles. Draw near to God. And the promise is he will draw near to you. Then four, cleanse your hands. Get rid of every unclean thing in your life. Pursue holiness. Leave behind the worldly, fleshly way of living. And James follows this command to cleanse your hands. And he says, you sinners. He's helping us see in a jarring way the need to put aside sin. All of us have sin. All of us need to do this. Put, it, put aside, get rid of everything that is impure. And this goes right into the next command, number five. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Purify your heart, renew every impure affection and motive. Renew every impure affection and motive. Don't only remove the sinful things in your life, but address the affections and the motives of your heart. No longer be double-minded, trying, trying, as I said just a moment ago, to keep one hand on God and one hand on the world. Don't be double-minded. Purify your heart. Be wholly devoted at a heart level to God. Number six, be miserable. This is to own the shame of sin. Be sorrowed by sin. Be sorrowed by sin. Grieve over it. Come to a brokenness over it agonize and come to a brokenness that causes you to truly repent of it. A godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And then seven, eight, nine, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. You could say it this way, mourn, weep, lament. Let God's conviction in your heart bring a sobriety about you in relationship to your sin. Don't joke about sin. Don't minimize sin. Don't laugh sin off. What we would call the most minor of sins is worthy of being punished for all eternity as every sin is committed against an infinitely holy God. And so don't make light of it. Be grieved by it. Let the Spirit's conviction sober you. Sin isn't a joke. Be heartbroken over the temporary destructive pleasures and things that bring us to ruin and offend our Savior. And then lastly, humble yourselves. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. How do you address the pride of a worldly heart? Let humiliation crush that old pride. Make yourself low before God. Recognize and understand the reality that you are completely unworthy before God. Completely unworthy to make demands, to pursue wickedness as if it would satisfy you is atrocious. God is God. God is righteous. God is good. And you humble yourself before him knowing how utterly unworthy you are. And what? 
he'll exalt you. What a kind, generous God. He will forgive you. He will satisfy you. He will call you his own. He will allow you to participate in his purposes. He will have fellowship with you. What a gift. What a God. Address the pride of a worldly heart. Next, number three, wage war on a worldly heart. How must we do this? Number three, address the criticism of a worldly heart. Address the criticism of the worldly heart. We've seen the need to address the lust of a worldly heart. We've seen the need to address the pride of a worldly heart. And now we see the need to address the criticism of a worldly heart in verses 11 and 12. And by now, I hope that you are seeing how important relationships within the body of Christ are to God. James continues to address them here. Look at the first part of verse 11. James says, do not speak against one another. Do not speak against one another. Or some translations say, do not speak evil against one another. And this is a command to not speak evil. And there is an emphasis centered on speaking against one another with hostile intent. This is criticism, a critical heart. This would include things such as slander or gossip. This also could be gloating over the sin and shortcoming of another. This is where you are critical of those around you. You see everyone's faults and you hold them to those faults. You expose other sins or weaknesses, but not out of love for them. You do it to try to make determinations about them in your heart. And James goes on to say, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. And to judge here is to make an ultimate judgment of something. James isn't saying don't care for one another in regards to sin, right? A lot of people want to use these types of passages that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount or this passage here to see, hey, don't judge me. And what they mean by that is don't come to me and talk to me about my sin. That's not what James is talking about here. We are called to do that. We have to do that. We need each other to help us see what we cannot see when left to ourselves. We need that kind of encouragement. One of the greatest ways that we love one another well is by humbly, graciously, patiently coming to one another with concern where there's sin. That's not what James is saying here. He's saying don't speak against or deem something in regards to something, somebody else. James, is, in essence here, is calling out people who make assessments of others and determine that they are not worthy of anything but your contempt. You're critical. You're judging, not because you love and you want to help somebody see and repent of sin. It's because you think less of that person. You've made determinations about that person in your heart. You're not, as Tom Engstead says, a beggar helping another beggar find bread. You have lorded yourself and determined they are a beggar and I am a king and they are unworthy. That's what James is addressing here. You're critical in your heart to the point of considering people as unworthy of equal or of higher value than yourself. This is in direct contrast to the kind of thinking that that Jesus calls us to have, that Paul instructs us to have as Jesus has, where we consider others' needs above our own. This is where you have determined your needs are supremely important and others are unworthy. And so you speak derogatory words to malign someone's character or reputation so that others are influenced to be against them. You might do this by false accusations. You might make something up. Or you might do it by exaggerating people's known faults. Or you might do this by repeatedly mentioning others' faults. You just bring it up over and over again. And James says, when you do this, when you give in to your criticism of others and and speak against them, when you judge them, you actually speak against the law. 
and judge the law. Now, what law is James speaking about here? It's clear he's not talking about the Mosaic law. In fact, do you remember how James has already spoken about the law? Look back at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 8, when he's talking about not showing partiality within the church, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You can go back to chapter 4. The heart of the Christian life is to love God and love others. And so when we speak poorly of another, we are failing to love our brother. When we are critical of a brother to the point of contempt of that brother, we are failing to love him. And since speaking against a brother is to not act in the best interest of that person, it is a lack of love and a lack of fulfillment of God's law. We need to put that aside. So if you act in a way that is contrary to the law, what James is saying here is you are then speaking not only against your brother in that moment, but you're acting and speaking against the law itself. If the law that, God is, that James is talking about here is that we love others when we malign one another, we are not only speaking against that person, but we are actually in our actions demonstrating what we think about God's law that says to love that person. When you do this, when I do this, we are in action claiming that we are above the law, that we're not under its authority. The law of God is the standard from God's word as he's talking about love for one another, for how you are to treat one another. And so when you speak against someone, you speak against the standard of God for how you are to interact among each other. In essence, if you condemn people, you're condemning the royal law, which commands you to love people. You aren't living in accordance to God's law. You're living over it. James says, but if you judge the law, so if you're doing this, you're not a doer of the law, but you are a judge of it. He spells it out clearly. This needs to shock us. James could have simply said, don't ridicule others. Don't tear them down. But he goes again right after the heart. When I don't love a brother, it has more to do than just my view of that brother. In that moment, you aren't living in accordance to God's law. You're living over it. And James says, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of it. You're a judge of it. So here, when we tear down people, we are actually tearing down God's law. And so it is an attempt to actually tear down God himself, to remove God from his throne, and to place yourself on it. You might say, James, you're, you're overreacting. You're making too big of a deal out of this. I, I don't have a problem with God. I love God. It's just specific people I have a problem with. We've all, I'm sure, felt that way at times, but that's self-deception. When you judge the law, you aren't coming under it. You are sitting in judgment over it. Look at verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. God is exclusively the lawgiver and the judge. And so how ridiculous is it for us to sit in judgment on someone's life? We're not able to judge. We aren't able to render a verdict on someone's eternal standing before God in that last day. We aren't able to give a sentence on someone's life. We aren't able to destroy them. We aren't able to save them eternally. James says in Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And then he asks, but who are you who judge your neighbor? How foolish is it to assume that position? Only God can render such a judgment. Only God can save. Only God can destroy. In light of this, who are we to judge each other, to speak so critically and definitively about each other when God tells you to love them? to even do so out of selfishness for our own personal agenda, to try to create divisions and, and, 
and angst between believers to defame someone within the body of Christ to make ourselves look better. That is self-love, not selfless love. So how do we wage war on a worldly heart? We, we have to address the criticism of a worldly heart, the lack of love for others found in a worldly heart. James ends this section with, but who are you to judge your neighbor? The answer is, I, I'm a nobody. I have no right to this. I'm not above the law. I'm not a lawgiver. I'm not a law enforcer. I'm not out from under the law. I'm bound by the law to love my brother. And if God says love people, I'm to love people. I'm to do it unconditionally in spite of how they treat me. We must do that. We must love others independently of who they are or how they act. I love people regardless of if they meet my expectations. I don't criticize because I think they should be doing this. In fact, God's word calls them to do this and they're not doing it. They must be. And then the conclusion is made. No. I love others independently of who they are or how they act. I don't criticize. I don't slander. I don't gossip. I don't speak in a way that renders judgment on another. I love without condition, without expectation, without limits. Think of what a church with 600 people would look like if we all did this all the time. How sweet would that be? What a testimony to the world that would be. It's so encouraging to see how this is happening. Even this week, I received an email that revealed somebody was assuming the best in me for a long time when they could have assumed the worst. There could have been conflict between me and that person. And yet they were gracious. They didn't render a judgment on me. They loved me well. That happens over and over and over again. And listen, it needs to keep happening over and over again in this body. We cannot allow ourselves to become critical in our hearts and to render judgments. What ends up happening? I have expectations. They're not met within this body, so I'm going to go to this church. And I bring those same expectations, and listen, eventually you'll be disappointed, and then you'll go to another church, maybe. Over time, your heart hardens. Your selfishness increases, and we must lay that aside. We must love humbly, unconditionally, diligently. How do you talk about people? How do you talk about your church? Children, with your friends. How do you talk about your parents? How do you talk about your siblings, husbands, wives? When you're talking with your friends or your parents, how do you talk about your spouse? We must put aside critical hearts that make judgments. We must love. Lastly, wage war on worldliness. How? How do we do this? We must address address. The presumption of a worldly heart. Address the presumption of a worldly heart. We see this in verses 13 through 17. Address the presumption of a worldly heart. James is addressing a mindset that reveals the orientation of the heart. And so for the Christian who is looking to wage war against worldliness, James here addresses another area where worldliness creeps into the heart of man. And he says, come now. This is like saying, listen closely You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. This person has made presumptions. They've made assertions of where they will go, how long they will be there, what they will do, and what the result will be. And you may think, well, what's wrong with this? They're planners. 
That's good. I'm a planner. I like to plan. Yet James, again, isn't pointing out some huge problems with what we see in verse 13. James, in verses 16 through 17, says the attitude, this way of thinking, this presumption is the problem. This, this presumption, this arrogance is evil and it is sin. And it's not that they're doing these things described in verse, thing, uh, verse 13, but it is the heart they have going into these things. These people are planning, but they're planning without thought of God's will, God's plans. They're not thinking about God's sovereignty in their plans. They aren't thinking about their need for God in these things. They aren't thinking about God's presence in every circumstance. They're functioning independent of God, not in dependency upon God. This isn't an indictment on planning, but on worldly self-confidence. This is living as if God does not exist or as if God doesn't care about what you do. This is the type of person who thinks they have all their plans and they're able to bring about what they want without any regard for God's control and involvement in their life and really in their world. It's an attitude and thought life and actions that believes you are in control and you can bring about your will. James gives two reasons in verse 14 as to why this kind of thinking is wrong. First, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Do you see that there in verse 14? And it is prideful to think you know how your life is going to go. You presume about this next year, and you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Second, he says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Talk about a humbling statement. Life is short. The fact that you don't know what tomorrow holds and that life is short should cause you to not ignore God, but to cling to him all the more. Instead of making confident assertions independent of God, what should you do? Well, look at verse 15. James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. This is the positive way that one should interact with God's will. Not with presumptions. Instead of a self-centered, self-willed response, this one submits themselves under God's will. This one acknowledges God's sovereignty, God's power, God's presence in all things and his working in all things. There's planning, but this one recognized that all plans are subject to divine approval. The will of God is the center of all plans. This one recognizes that we live. We live We live only because God wills it so. The breath we take this very moment, the beating our heart makes is only because God has willed it so. God is the center of all plans. Tomorrow isn't promised. And if you find yourself alive today, it is a gift from God. So for the Christian, this kind of response is is actually an act of worship and is to flow from a heart that doesn't presume upon God, doesn't presume upon the Lord, but is each and every day dependent upon God. And then James says, verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. James returns to the result of the mindset in verse 13. Their boasting is, is in contrast to the attitude that you should have. They are boasting or bragging in arrogance. They're boasting in arrogance because they're putting themselves in the place of God. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go here, and I'm going to accomplish this, as if you can do anything apart from the grace of God. This kind of arrogant, foolish, empty boasting is evil. It is evil to know No God is in control and to not submit yourself under his will, but to boast in your own. Then verse 17, therefore, and James is connecting this verse to the content right before that that we've just gone over. In verse 17, he says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Now, independently of what's going on around, this proverbial truth is true, 
But I think James is talking about something more specific than just the general fact. If you know something good that you should do and you don't do it, to, to him it's a sin. He's talking about something specific here. The conjunction, therefore, demonstrates that. What is the, what is the right thing to do? Well, in this context, it's don't presume upon the Lord. Submit to him. You can't get off the hook saying, I don't overtly sin against God. Listen, did you depend upon him? Were you dependent upon God? Did you submit yourself to his will? Did you recognize his presence? What does this look like practically for us? Well, listen, how how might you respond to life's various circumstances when you recognize God's presence and sovereignty in them and are eager to submit to his will versus when you are navigating your own life independent of God? Have you ever made these types of statements? Just so frustrated with work right now. My kids are driving me crazy. Why does this always happen to me? When the person speeds by you, makes it through the yellow light, and you have to stop because you were going the speed limit. Why? Why does this always happen? (laughs) Or maybe, listen, I'm at my wit's end. I just can't deal with one more bad thing happening to me today. What do those kinds of statements say about your heart in that moment, your recognition of God's presence in that moment? If you did recognize God's presence in that moment, do you think you'd make those same statements? In that moment, are you living driven by your will, your agenda, your expectations, your lusts? Living as if God isn't in control and God isn't near to you? The reality is he is near. And he is in control. And he loves you. And he's committed to growing you in holiness and preserving you in your faith. Remember, God gives a greater grace. We can live for God. We can flee worldliness because of his great love, because of his great grace. We need to render our will, wills, yield our will to God in all things, recognize his presence in every single thing. And when it, when it doesn't go the way you expect it, there can be peace for you in that moment. There can be hope for you in that hardship. There can be joy for you in that trial. There can be comfort for you in that affliction. Because you recognize God's nearness. You, you recognize that you didn't have these plans and your plans have been thwarted. And now what must you do? You recognize God has plans for you and they are for your good and for his glory. And so God, not, how, the question isn't how do I escape what's going on because my agenda has been thwarted. The question is how, I can, be, how can I be pleasing to you in this moment because I know you're near. And I know you love me. And I know you give me a greater grace. And though I'm struggling right now, I choose to trust you regardless of how I feel. How wonderful is the grace of God? How wonderful is God? Let's pray. God, we have covered a lot of ground in your word, in our hearts this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would, where there is conviction, help us to to change your instruction, your warning for us against worldliness, your instruction for us that would promote godliness and fellowship with you is, is for our good. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. What makes these things hard and, and difficult is not because holiness is, is bad or hard, but because we still have sin that we want to hold on to. And so I, help, I pray that you would help us to let go of that, to repent of that, to turn from that where we need to and to draw near to you, that we would have sweet fellowship with you as you in turn draw near to us. 
pray that we would be humbled, that we might experience the overflowing of your grace in our lives, that we would look to you, to your greater grace as we seek to fight this sin, recognizing that sin no longer has a reign in our life because you have done it all in the gospel and now grace reigns where sin once did. And so we praise you and we thank you and we worship you and we repent of that old way of living, that worldly way of living Lord, help us to do that even now as we sing. I pray that the words that come out of our mouth would be true of the affections of our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.